Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. I'm Adam Pierno, Generation X. I'm Farrah Bostick and I'm sick of this game. (laughs) (laughs) We we did have a conversation about we we may not do the nicknames for this new thing that we're trying. This is our first episode of something we're calling book club. Did you want to say that in unison? <laughs> we need, no. <laughs> we need a, a stinger or something that comes in. Like maybe we'll hire the, the Andrew sisters to sing a little song about book club. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a neat trick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've only been dead 40 years. I think yeah, I was going to say for our younger listeners, <laughs> the Andrew sisters are dead. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Farron and I also have another series about the Andrews sisters that we've been working on for two years. Um, low listenership. <laughs> Not a lot of people tuning in to learn about the Andrews sisters. Anyway, so the reason we are doing a book club is because, or as we completed Millennials Rising, we started making a list, a bibliography. Now, as you all recall from our Millennials Rising episode, not an extensive bibliography. Essentially, they cite themselves and some websites. And there were like five websites when they wrote that book. Great job, guys. So we have been building this book list over time for the ongoing research that we're doing. We're going to have to read these books. There's about 20 so far. We'll probably end up reading about 35 or 40 by the time we're done. And we thought, we're going to talk about them anyway. Let's record it and share uh, for for this wonderful listening and viewing audience. Yeah. and And, you know, there's interesting stuff in all of these books, even if we have uh, quibbles with many of them. But <laughs> but it's the quibbles it's are what make it fun. Yeah, Absolutely. and they are part of constructing the overall narrative. And I think it's important to understand like how the bricks get laid for these sorts of things. Yeah, so that part of uh, how each book becomes a brick or builds to the next thing that's stacked on top of it is a really important part of how we're thinking about these, but also talking through the content of the books in their own right as a self-contained piece for its time and place, which becomes part of the greater narrative. So our first book in book club, Cue the Sting, that doesn't exist yet, but let's see what AI music can do, um, (laughs) is a book that Farah introduced me to. Farah, you, I think, had already read this book. It is called The Selfie Vote from Kristen Soltis Anderson. I'm looking at my copy here. You discovered this book and you had read it, I think, before we even started this project together, hadn't you? No, I, I was aware of Kristen's work. I'd had fact okay. talked to Kristen once and then talked to her co-founder a couple of times. But the way that I learned about the book was, I think I was aware that she had written a book. <laughs> um, but she was recently on uh, a couple months ago, an episode of 538 Politics, talking about some dueling pieces in the FT and the New York Times about whether millennials had been were, were shifting to the right as they as they approached middle age or not. Um, That's and right. so that book was mentioned. And I thought, well, I should actually finally read this book. 
So that's how we that's how we came across that. It is a pretty breezy read. So the the premise of the book, I will read a synopsis for you uh, for the listeners. I think this is a book that is worth checking out. There's some some stuff we'll talk about that I think makes it a little tricky in the current context. But uh, overall, here's the summary: the GOP's leading millennial pollster offers an eye-opening look at America's shifting demographics and reveals how these changes will affect future elections. The American electorate is undergoing a radical transformation. So true. Cultural factors are reshaping how a new generation of voters considers issues. Demographic shifts are creating an increasingly diverse electorate, and technological advances are opening new avenues for voter contact and persuasion. Kristen Soltis Anderson examines these hot topic trends and how they are influencing the way youth, women, and minorities vote. Blending observations from focus groups, personal stories, and polling results, the Republican pollster offers key insights into the changing nature of American politics. Listening to her on that episode of 538 is my my limited exposure. She obviously is a wealth of information. She knows her stuff. I mean, big time. She has the numbers, you know, memorized, committed to committed to memory. She was very nimble in the in that conversation of being able to bounce around and talk about the shift to conservatism and seemingly being able to pick out flaws in that author's argument about where they were sourcing the data from and the slices that they were that they were showing in those New York Times articles and FT articles. She's pretty sharp. You did get to speak to her, I know, in the past. Any thoughts on uh, her as an author and as a pollster? Yeah, so she is a founder, co-founder of a polling firm called Echelon Insights. Um, they are yeah. considered to be a conservative polling firm. Um, her and Patrick Ruffini founded the, the company. Part of you know she's she's extremely experienced speaking on things like podcasts for a few reasons. One, she used to co-host her own with Margie O'Mara, who's a Democratic pollster, and then they also uh, you know she makes a lot of media appearances. She you know is a used to be a fairly frequent. I think the first time I ever heard of her, she had come on uh, Morning Joe or something, and it happened to be on in my hotel room, and so I was like, oh, she seems smart. You know, I, I know that when it comes to conservative-leaning pollsters, people I know who work on the more liberal side of politics tend to have a lot of respect for Echelon and tend to think that kind of methodologically, they're very sound in their practices. They're also, they tend to be kind mm-hmm. of leaders in methodologies and that they feel like they get a fair shake. So obviously that will immediately condemn them in the eyes of anybody who's super conservative because yeah, right. giving the other side a fair shake is is not um, it's not the rules of the game these days. But yeah, we were connected because I think this is probably, it had to have been, now that I remember like this is my, how my memory works. I was sitting in a particular location, so I know it was before the Trump election. <laughs> so it had to have been yeah. probably around 2015 when I was originally okay. connected with them. So we were connected via a mutual friend, a good friend of mine, Bill Butler, who um, has a data viz and Wikipedia consultancy called the Butler Inc., uh, introduced us. <clears throat> They'd worked together in a previous life. And so she and Patrick very generously got on the phone just to talk to me about what made the way they do what they do different from what I usually do. And I think it's probably Mm -hmm. came up because I had done a little bit of political work by that point. And usually when it's political work, they really just kind of want a moderator who will do some analysis, but they have a method that they want you to use. And so you don't get to design the discussion guide or the stimulus or anything like that. 
And it was very different from what I'm used to with with traditional, you know, commercial marketers as opposed to political marketers. And so I, I wanted to be able to have a non-confrontational conversation with somebody and say, like, what the heck is this going? Why, why before there was an way? issue being yeah, before there was an issue being discussed, it's more just like yeah. about the method. Exactly. Yeah. And it was a really I think they were also curious about how marketing market researchers for you know brands and and commercial enterprises approach things differently from how they do things the the biggest thing that kind of emerged out of that conversation with them for me at least was the realization that we're kind of the stakes are different and obviously the stakes are different but the the kind of clearest articulation of that that I came to was no brand I work with has one day every 2 to 4 years where all consumers, all available consumers will make a decision about whether it's going to be brand A or brand B, and they're only going to make one purchase, right. and they're not going to buy again for two to four years. <laughs> like There are definitely product life cycles that are that long, but you know, consumer life cycles for around products that are that long, but it's not the same. It's not like it's down to two choices and you have to pick one and all of that. So their incentives as researchers are different from my incentives as a researcher. And their pressures. Yes. And I don't have to predict an outcome. I don't have to be right about how the consumers are going to go. I have to provide a direction. And then we go in that direction and see how we do as we go along. And there's a lot more opportunity for iteration, even though I know people in the branding world don't feel like iteration happens nearly enough. But like there is, <laughs> you know, you refresh campaigns from time to time, you do a different campaign every quarter or so, like, you know, the brand positioning may not change frequently, but you've got a lot of time in market to learn. And that is yeah. not the case for political campaigns. So the emphasis is less on learning and more on predicting. And so a lot of how these firms kind of live or die is on how good they are at predicting the outcomes of elections. How are voters going to vote? Not why did voters vote the way they did vote? And what I think, though, is interesting about how Echelon approaches it is I think they look forward and they look back. They, they they try to take more of a historical view as opposed to just like, I mean, they all do, right? They're all kind of using their own definitions of what's a likely voter, who's really an independent voter versus not an independent voter, you know, right. coming up with their own kind of models of how people are likely to respond to things. And I just found them to be really thoughtful about it and and really generous with their time in, in discussing it with me. And then I did later spend a little time in person with Patrick at Personal Democracy Forum in, in New York. A friend of mine was helping to organize that event. And so he more or less snuck me in. Um, <laughs> and so... Um, so I got to kind of just observe how those people were talking about things. And I think it was interesting for Patrick coming from a more conservative point of view. PDF is not really uh, an event designed for conservatives, <laughs> for all being very honest. Yeah, it's, it's yeah I was thinking, did he sneak you in or did you sneak him in? Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, pa Patrick um, didn't, wasn't the one who who snuck me in. That was, that was another friend of mine. But anyway, so yeah, so that, that's how I know of them and, and had some limited interactions with them. I haven't spoken to them in several years now, but... I generally think that they're just thoughtful people about it and are not closely aligned with any given campaign. And so they're not closely aligned with any particular agenda apart from yeah. the electorate. And obviously they are conservative. And so they have an interest in figuring out what it will take for conservative candidates to win. Yeah. But I think they're not MAGA conservatives as a general matter. And it, it, that thoughtfulness definitely comes through in the book. 
Yep. So the, the full title of the book, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but the, the, the title, the bold big words are the selfie vote. But then the no books can be rewritten now without a uh, semicolon subtitle. But of course. the selfie vote, where millennials are leading America, parentheses, and how Republicans can keep up. It's like, here's yeah. the big headline that Vox can write about. And then we got millennials in there for SEO. And then <laughs> Republicans, if you're conservative, this book is for you. Like, But that's that's not her fault. I have a feeling that happens with the publisher. Probably, yeah. So... <laughs> Knowing that is really informative to about, as you open page one, what you're about to get into. I think there's one big challenge with the book, which is it was written before President Trump. It was written before the 2016 election is final. Yes. That's not the fault of the author, but reading it now is um, a little bit like a time capsule. So she is making those predictions you just referenced and it's not that you, I read it and say like, oh, she doesn't know what she's doing. It's like nobody could have predicted that weird left turn that the world took when the simulation glitched into where we are now. But sometimes I'm reading it and I'm like, well, I don't think this thing about Obama really holds. Like, so now what do I do with this chapter? <laughs> what do I do? Now, that, like I said, that's not the author's fault that things went cattywampus. But as I was reading it, I had to keep on flagging myself like, okay, but what can I learn about millennials at this time? You know, what did we think was happening? Yeah. And and I think that, yeah, so specifically, I think the book comes out in 2015. So she's probably writing yeah. it after the 2012 election. And then after the 2014 midterms, like that's when she's working on yeah. this book, most likely. I, I don't know that firsthand, but I'm going to assume. And I think the yeah. interesting thing there is, yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Literally, he had not come down the escalator yet before this book comes out. I think we'll talk about kind of broader things happening around this period and around this conversation. But I think the other thing that's interesting just to to drop in here is that after the 2012 presidential election, in which Mitt Romney lost to Obama, there was a a, a report that was kind of commonly referred to as the GOP autopsy. And mm -hmm. it was led by people in the, in the, in the GOP and the party itself to try to figure out why Republicans were losing these younger constituents, um, more diverse constituents, why they were losing these elections. I think they really thought going into 2012 that like Obama looked kind of weak the first half of the campaign, he seemed to be annoyed he had to campaign. <laughs> um, yes. He was not his best candidate self. No, there was that one weird debate where he was like drowsy. Yeah, remember? yeah. He just seemed like, why, why, yeah. why do I have to deal with this? Yeah. <laughs> Joe, Joe Biden came out swinging and everyone was like, can we get some of that juice put back into Obama? Yeah, right, right. Put it on this guy. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so, and also I think there was a sense in the ranks of the party operatives of, of the GOP that like Mitt Romney was an, a nice and honorable man who was a perfectly reasonable candidate who should have done better than he did. Right. And, you know, and obviously there's a whole kind of undercurrent of the Tea Party and other stuff that, that started right after Obama's initial election and after the financial crisis, you know, yada, yada. But like, this is part of that dialogue. I, I would place the selfie vote as part of that post-2012 examination of well-intentioned totally. conservatives trying to figure out how they were going to adapt to a changing electorate. Um, the GOP autopsy really emphasized things like immigration policy, LGBTQ policy 
policies and generally being more more moderate on a variety of things in order to attract younger voters. They were particularly concerned about millennials starting out so much more to the left than previous generations had, and that they they did not do particularly well among millennials with the Romney campaign. So there was a real look right. at and of course, then, you know, then Trump comes down the escalator and throws a bomb moderate. in that pond and just goes, you don't have to be yeah. moderate on immigration. You don't have to be moderate about anything. You don't have to have a consistent set of views at all. And so, like, ideology, what's that? We'll just do personality, you know, for varying definitions of it, of something working that worked. So I think we... <laughs> <laughs> keep that in our minds when we're when we're thinking about that. You know, just to go back, we were talking before we started recording about my um how ringer pilled I am in my podcast consumption. I, I am too. I, <laughs> the other night I was listening to 60 songs that explain the 90s and they were talking about doll parts, I think, from uh oh. Pulse album Live Through This, sure. which came out 2 days after Kurt Cobain died. And so oh, yeah. If you didn't really know much about Hole, you didn't know much about Courtney Love before that album came out, which you might not have, it was very easy to look at that album and think that it was about Kurt dying, when obviously it could right. not be about Kurt dying. It had been written long before that and just happened to drop two days later. Um, and this feels kind of like that phenomenon of like, you're, we're reading it now knowing what we know happened yes. after this. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, and I... And I don't think we'll need for each book, I don't know that we'll need this much context, but for this book, if people pick it up, I think it's important to know that it's a, it is self-contained in this kind yes. of in-between time. Exactly. But but I think there's it, this continues to be a conversation on the right, which is, I think I expressed it to you at some point when we started reading this book of like, it's the there's got to be a pony in here somewhere <laughs> kind of approach of as I was reading the yeah. book, it seemed like you know, she wasn't trying to make anything up, but she was looking for signal in the noise that there was some way for conservative politicians and conservative campaigns to connect with younger voters. And totally. so there's a lot of hopefulness in here <laughs> that may feel a little misguided to those of us who don't share those politics. Um, and also, you know, knowing what happened next. But I think and knowing where the party appears to be today uh, the GOP appears to be today. It feels a little naive, but I don't think, you know, given that where it was in time, I don't actually think it was all that naive, but it still was looking for a pony in a pile of crap. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's challenging with hindsight to read it and be like, well, that didn't, that didn't pan out. I think <laughs> if I have a question about the book, I got about a third of the way through the book when I messaged you and said, are we sure this is about millennials? Uh -huh. So I think a question that, that I raise about the, that, you know, just focused on the text itself, she does use the words millennials as in the title, title two of three. But early on in the book, she sort of says those, she refers to them as for those eager to dismiss millennials, those born in the 1980s and 1990s. She doesn't get to a hard date and never really defines it, which is something I think you and I are focused on as we read each of these books. And I think we'll create a kind of a visual timeline of how each group categorizes it because it's this shifting time. But the rest of the book, she swings back and forth between saying millennials, young people, the youth, young voters. And that is important. That, that distinction of, are we talking about millennials, which to you and I is a window Mm -hmm. But as we just talked about with Kim Parker from Pew is not a recognized 
you know, by them at least, by the census at least, is not really a recognized firm date. So that swing is important to me because if you're going to put millennials in the title, then let's agree on let's let's put the ropes around the ring of what we're talking about. Where are we going to have this this battle about Mm -hmm. what millennials think? Hard to pin that down if I don't even know who's in and who's out of that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's an interesting challenge for pollsters because they are, you know, particularly thinking about a poll, uh, uh, internal polling for a campaign where they're what they're trying to do is understand who's in their coalition and what is that? Co- what what do the different constituencies of that coalition need to hear in order to be activated to volunteer, donate and vote? The, those are like the three KPIs for a campaign. And yeah. so the reason that I think they maybe tend not to actually deal with like generational cohorts and instead deal with these kind of age bands is that um, I think they have a sense that like traditionally at least the issue profiles of voters shift as we age. And so it's better to talk about young voters most of the time than it is to talk about millennial voters, because I think the expectation was Millennial voters would look like every other voting cohort, and as they got older, would shift a little towards independence or towards towards the right. Right, and and so I think, like in in you know, to go back to your kind of introduction of the thing, putting the name millennial in the in the subtitle is partly there to market the book. Like you know, we're all trying to figure out millennials at this you know, even at that late date, <laughs> still trying to figure out the millennials in 2015, still trying to figure them out in 2023. The th- that was there to sell the book because you're right. Once you start getting into the book, you you see two things. One is that the selfie thing is kind of a hook every once in a while in the book. Although hilariously, all of the examples of selfies in a political context (laughs) that are in the introduction, bless her, none of the people taking selfies in her examples are themselves millennials. (laughs) So even if it's a millennial behavior, the the people doing it are boomers. Almost all of them are she boomers. Gives, yeah, she gives <laughs> she gives three or four examples of famous selfies, and they are all uh, boomers, or maybe I don't know if Ellen DeGeneres might technically be Gen X, but she's a boomer. There I are ch- no millennials. <laughs> oh, you yeah, did? she's a young boomer. She's born in like sixty three or okay. something. Um, but oh, yeah, that's so good. Yeah, you've got like not a one. Um, you know, El- Ellen yeah. at the Oscars. Even some of the people that she uh, talked about who were like um, Nick Gillespie or whatever, like kind of movement conservative journalist types, like they themselves are either old Gen Xers or young boomers. There's right. there's not a lot of not a lot of. <laughs> Not a lot of, and the Pope certainly not a millennial. So that is. And can we in here though? In his heart, he is. Can we talk a little bit about the selfie as voting metaphor, like the self-expression of the selfie, and and what she's like? I don't know that I feel like the loop really gets closed on that part of it as well. That okay, the book is called the selfie vote. So then to. When I started reading it, I thought she was going to say, okay, these are the behaviors of millennials. One of them is that they take selfies mm-hmm. and this is how they express themselves when they vote. But it, it's kind of like, there's a thing called a selfie. Here are examples of people taking them. As you pointed out, they're not millennials. And then it doesn't, there's not like, there is a section on Uber, which again, this is not her fault that Uber is at this point, at that point was somewhat novel. Yeah. But now is 
kind of a fact of life. It's part of the fabric of everybody's phone. But those those pieces of content about digital mobile behaviors, I feel like I'm like, yeah, but therefore I'm, I'm waiting for it for that loop to close. Yeah. So I, I think... I think one of the things she's trying to connect the dots on, and, and I think she says this fairly early in the book, is that your political attitudes come from someplace, that your political preferences don't just sort of emerge the day you register to vote. Right. And and the way you encounter political ideas, political candidates and campaigns is through a filter of the rest of your life, all your other preferences. And so I think what she's also um, responding to is the rise of analytics in campaign strategy and Mm -hmm. the buying of large data sets in order to combine the voter file with people's consumer behavior. So that I think she has an example somewhere in the book about like dog lovers tending to be Democrats or something like that. And so you're, you're seeing more ads for Obama because you happen to have, you know, you, you have a, (laughs) a a customer loyalty card at Petco or, you know, whatever it is. And so that was definitely a rising trend at that point. It's not it's not new. And I think the other thing that's going on, just as another kind of little backdrop here, is Republicans actually have been the pioneers of the use of direct marketing and consumer data as a way of segmenting, targeting, and messaging to their yeah. potential constituents, both in terms of trying to recruit voters and also in the sense of trying to deter voters. So they, they use it both positively and negatively. And the angst that sometimes I think appears on the right is they don't get a lot of credit for having been extremely innovative in this way, right? Like the Obama campaign gets a lot of credit for being like right, for using social, social media, media online yeah. campaign. So sexy. Which is also kind of like, well, I mean, Howard Dean kind of pioneered <laughs> pioneered that too. Like, the, the, not the first the first out of the gate, but sure, give give them their flowers. But no one's giving flowers to Carl Rove for having been really good at direct mail. Right. Um, and so now you've got you know coming out of particularly I think coming out of the 2012 campaign where Romney's campaign was like data heavy. They were they had what was it called like Project Orca or something like that that was intended to be pulling together all of these data sets and creating an incredibly sophisticated messaging, targeting, turnout uh, strategy. And so I think some of the reason she's talking about these behaviors and these devices is that we're trying to connect people's kind of consumer behavior and other online social behaviors to their political behaviors. I'm not sure she's totally successful in connecting all of those dots or being explicit enough about why that's, I'm going to stop myself there. I think the chapters are laid out trying to draw those connections, trying to say like, this is how they're behaving in this sector and this sector and this sector. And so that might explain why they have the preferences politically that they have because they're growing up in a culture that looks like this and they're faced with these consumer options and so on. I think my problem with the, the selfie metaphor, I guess, is that it's a recycling of something that had been said about the boomers in the 80s, which is they were the me generation, right? And and I think there's this this symbol, I think she talks about it as the ultimate symbol of an it's all about me younger generation that cares primarily about documenting and broadcasting its own greatness. Um, And so she's coming in after the turn, right? The the heel turn of the millennial myth has happened. (laughs) And so now we're feeling 
in a derogatory mood about these types of behaviors. But I think she's also a millennial herself and doesn't want to participate wholly in that project. Yeah, well, she's she's also trying to remain optimistic about she's recognizing that they have turned or that the story has turned. But I think the book is about how can we win them back? Like what's the, what's the path forward right. for Republicans to, to earn their share of these votes? We're not going to get them all, but yeah, I, I, if you put selfie in the title, I'm going to pay attention to the use of that word in the book. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think you're right. Like the chapters are pretty orderly that she's making a case. She's stacking the components of essentially like a, what is this? 240 page persona. Yeah, this is this is how they do this. This is what they prefer here. Can we talk about rural America and urban areas? There's some content there. I don't know. I don't have the chapter listed here. It's page 92, so I can figure that out quickly that I'm thinking about. There's a conclusion made. I don't disagree with what she says, which is essentially that where people live in more denser areas, they have different concerns. Greater, she says, uh, greater density often leads to more democratic-leaning politics. I agree that people who live in cities have different needs, different concerns than people who live in rural parts of the country. I think that makes sense. I'm not convinced that means millennials, although I know if you do like a demographic heat map, there people tend to move, young people tend to move and stay in cities. And older people tend to live in rural America, but that's not, is it because they're millennial and they live in cities or is it because they live in cities in urban areas? <laughs> right, right. What's, you know what's what I mean? Like, what if we just, there, yeah. what if we extract the word millennial from all these sentences and now we just look at the geography of it and the lifestyle of someone who lives in a city and they're like a really dense East Coast city. I don't think that's because you're 30 years old. I think that is because you have those same concerns. You're elbow to elbow with people. You are dealing with the structure of that city and transit and taxes and all the things that impact people in a city differently. Yeah. I mean, that that section, I also had some <laughs> some notes on there of like, again, we talk about this a lot, what's cause and what's effect. And so there was something in there about two thirds of young adults think you can be a renter and still achieve the American dream. And obviously, sort of traditionally, our understanding of what the American dream is, is mm-hmm. homeownership, right? It's the detached house with the car in the driveway, the picket fence, the 2.3 kids, whatever it is. So sure, young adults are changing the definition of the American dream, but the American dream has changed a lot over many decades. And it changes in large part based on kind of what's on offer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once you've done westward expansion <laughs> and the, you know, the great migration west and everybody's sticking their stake in the ground and then fighting over who actually owns that acre, like, you know, that that changes what what the American dream is. Factories and cities changes what the American dream is. All of these things sort of change what the American dream is. So that's just like a changing definition of the American dream that is in large part probably driven by two things. One is young people, particularly college-educated young people's attraction to cities where high-paying jobs are and the lack of available or the lack of affordable purchase price housing. Like you can figure out how to scrape together the rent, but you can't buy, you can't buy a $3 million apartment. So that to me is like, uh, is that because they're young? Is that because of property prices? And 
you know, and, and what are all the factors that go into play there? And all that that entails. Yeah, exactly. right, right, right. Because then that's where the conservatism conversation starts. It's like once there is home ownership, Absolutely. that's where you usually see that tilt. It's like all of a yeah. sudden I care about my school taxes and all these things yes. that are related to my mortgage. Yes. And and you also have, you know, she talks about the walk score that, that people who are buying a home might have of like, how far is it to get to things I need? Do I have to get in the car every time I want a gallon of milk is sort of the example mm-hmm. she gives there. And, you know, again, I think there's a certain amount of like convenience, the price of gas, <laughs> um, you know, just the hassle of having, like, I feel that where I live now is like anything I want, I got to get in the car and drive on two lane roads in order to get to it. And there might or might not be parking at the gr- at the grocery store because it's a little town and there's not a big parking lot. And, you know, everything's a hassle. <laughs> so it's not like when I lived in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn and I could just uh, walk out my front door, walk to the end of the block, buy some milk and come back. Like that was, oh my God. You know, I'm so nostalgic for that. Um, My life was so simple then, Um, but it was also expensive. I mean, like, but there, you know, expense shows up in different ways. I think there's there's a lot there that also has nothing to do with age group. I was I was listening to that the new um, PJ Vote podcast that you you had referenced recently, and they were talking about why is it so hard to turn commercial space into uh, residential space. And mm-hmm. part of the answer is building codes. But where do those building codes come from? They come from basically like 100 years ago, somebody decided that this was the ideal life. I was surprised how interesting that was. I was like, yes. I don't even know if I want to listen to this. <laughs> I, yes, like, oh. I was listening to it. <laughs> I was listening to it while bringing my bathroom up to code. Um, that's uh, that's what. Yeah. That was oh, so it was like hitting a. It was hitting it was, a spot. With it was you, hitting right? a nerve. <laughs> yeah. um, and like, but the idea that like you know, we have to have light and we have to have windows and we have to have, you know, we can't have, you know, the off gassing from a restaurant going into someone's apartment yeah. and like, you know, all of these things. And so like, again, the laundry, millennials didn't make this laundry up. Facilities. Yeah. Yes. M- millennials didn't make this up. This, this, they were not alive at the time. You cannot blame this on them. You can't even blame it on boomers. It was before them. So th- no. these are not rules that are coming up because we're all on our phones all the time. These are rules that predate us and they dictate how we live. And I think this is, you know, a dead horse being beaten once again. My feeling about the millennial myth and all generational analysis is it just completely obliterates systems. It completely obliterates the idea that one of the reasons why you have more multiracial millennials than you have in previous generations is loving versus Virginia, the legalization of miscegenation. <laughs> like mm-hmm. once you say it is okay for white people to marry non-white people, then you can start having multiracial children. Right. It's not wokeness. <laughs> it's the government getting out of people's way and letting them marry but, who they love, right? <laughs> and in a generation before, you know, it's yeah. not like um, oh, yeah. they didn't go to the polls to vote for this, and then all of a sudden, all millennial couples are interracial. That's no. not. I mean, that's the narrative, but that's not what their facts no. are. I mean, I think I shared with you. We'll we'll put it somewhere. I'm sure. Um, maybe and maybe I'll put it in the the show's Instagram or something. I asked Midjourney to generate images of a stereotypical millennial couple listening to a podcast. I know. And the stereotypical millennial couple is a mixed race couple. 
And it's pull, it drives me nuts. I watch sometimes, uh, I still watch uh, linear television, believe it or not, and I see advertising and there's never a single race couple in, a, in an ad, ever. It doesn't, nope. All, couples and commercials must be interracial. It's a law or same sex. Right. I'm not yeah. sure this drives like the, we should do an analysis of the overlay of TV commercials in a primetime hour versus yeah. U.S. census and just see what the, what the match is. What, what's actually going on. I don't think it lines up. It's nice to see representation. Yeah, it's nice to see representation, but it's a little over-indexed. I don't think she is bad faith in this book. Like, you, no. there's a reading of this book where you could take the hairy eyeball to it and say, like, oh, she's trying to make a case. And I don't think she's doing that. I don't think she's pulling any of those dirty tricks on trying to make millennials the villain of the story. Yeah. But you can see the seeds. Like, you use the word heel turn, which is one of my favorites, where she's leaving out kind of convenient common sense answers. Like there's a section later in the book where she's talking about millennials or she says young people in America aren't terribly worried about the fact that the proportion of the population that is in retirement is about to expand significantly. So of course it's like millennials aren't worried enough about boomers, not their problem or fault. And thinking about what I'm sure she would call entitlements or social security or retirement. And it's like, well, she says Pew found that only 18% of young Americans think they are aging, that aging America is a major problem, while those age 50 or older are nearly twice as likely to say the same. And it's like, well, that's kind of convenient for you to forget that why would a person who's at this point 25 years old, of course, they're going to be less likely than someone who's 15 years away from retirement to be thinking about retirement or thinking it's a problem. Like when I was 25, man, I was just happy to pay my rent. So it's not quite bad faith, but it, it does that thing where it's like, they're not thinking about the future. You know, they're, they don't get it. And it's like, well, yeah, that is human nature. Yes. I mean, yes, there, there, this is where we go back to the period cohort and life stage approach that Kim Parker was talking about is, mm -hmm. yeah, in your 20s, you're not thinking about retirement as much as if you're nearing retirement. You know, my mother in her retirement talks way more about what's in her retirement savings than she ever did when she and my dad were working. I and think this is human nature. Yeah, because that's what you're living on. And you know, you're about to start living on that. And you know, it, the closer you get in time to something, the more the more present it is in all of your thinking and, and, and then also in all of your behavior. So it's the same way people don't floss until they're, they get a reminder that they have a dentist appointment coming. <laughs> it's like, exactly so right. is that millennials? I feel like no, that's, that's human nature. <laughs> <laughs> you're not bad, everybody. If you're listening and you do that, I still love you. <laughs> it's okay. It's less, okay. less, but oh, I still do come not on. love you. Yeah, so no, I mean, I mean, I, one of the things I, I've, found myself thinking about in these conversations about retirement and urban versus rural and some of these trends of what young people do versus what older people do is is also kind of a um and it, it led me to buy a book over there <laughs> that's i think is the, the the title of the book is i believe deaths of despair because we have this whole kind of trend of talking about social isolation and obviously it became an ever more important topic in the wake of the pandemic but 
one of the things I wondered about was, you know, she she was discussing in in that chapter about urban versus rural was um, she talked about in response to Pew's question about whether they'd rather live somewhere more widely spaced and with bigger houses or somewhere with smaller houses and more walkable communities. A majority of young people say they'd prefer to live where people are closer together, which made me wonder, like, is there kind of a general sort of slide towards the GOP being the party of social isolation, the, the people who live further apart, whose children have moved away, who have to get in the car to go get anything that they need, mm-hmm. um, who don't live very close to a good hospital or their physician or a community center or anything else. Oh, that's um, who don't have any of those kind of communal public amenities. I saw a headline, I haven't read the piece the other day about some Republican politician complaining that younger voters and people in cities and Democrats in general were demanding public amenities like public swimming pools. And now part of the reason they're demanding that is it's getting hotter, guys. Like people need a place to go where they can cool off and public pools are a place like that. And by the way, that was part of civic life in most small American towns for 70 years. Well, yes and no. I mean, if you read Heather McGee's The Sum of Us, you have plenty of places where they just like filled that thing with cement because they didn't want black people to use the public pools. But but yeah, so like, but it's seen as like, oh, you snowflakes wanting us to provide everything for you. And it's like, well, if I live in a house in a region that didn't used to have air conditioning, like a lot of houses in the Northwest don't have air conditioning because it never got that hot. And now it's consistently a hundred degrees in the summertime. You have to have air conditioning or you have to have something to cool you off. So like they're kind of mixing these things up because the story about liberal snowflake millennials is so endemic that they can't look at like, it's too hot. (laughs) Like It's just too damn hot. And now, of course, you you have some headlines that I saw yesterday about, you know, the GOP has decided that their position on the environment is screw it, burn it all down, because that they can connect sustainability initiatives to wokeness, and that can be a pejorative. And so they can use that to drive a wedge. We're going to use the environment as a wedge issue now, which it is always, you know, it has been kind of since the beginning. But nevertheless, the, these things are, it's, I, I go back to the horse I flog, which is like, there is a system happening and there are yeah. bigger factors going on that are driving these preferences and behaviors. And a more walkable community is one where you feel less isolated. A more walkable community means you're spending less at the pump because you don't have to fill your gas tank as often. Even if you're not environmentally minded, $4, mm-hmm. $5, $6 a gallon, depending on where you live, is insane for some people like that is that is way too much money to be spending for little errands here and there you know what and you you make a great point like again this comes down to this being in a time before the media switch that we're in now like where down is up and up is down but early in the book i think it's chapter one or maybe the introduction is page 12 she says she's talking about how much you can know through data about Mm -hmm. a voter. And she says, they can know if you like technology, they can know if you have a gun, they can know if you like to knit. And as a result, they can make a very, very good educated guess about if and how you'll vote. And in this book at this time in 2015, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. Had I read it, then I would have been like, oh, that's brilliant. Reading it now, I'm like, my question is actually based on the systems point you just made is actually like, or does the way I vote drive whether I go buy a gun? Like, does the way I vote drive the habits that I have? Like, I don't drink Bud Light because, yeah, 
Like, right? Two years ago, you would have said like, oh, a Bud Light voter, that person's going to definitely vote for, for, you know, a red, whatever, whoever the red candidate yeah. is. Now, coming into 2024 elections, you're going to say, oh, you're still drinking Bud Light. Okay, we're going to put you in the blue column. Like, yeah. And, but it's, it's so everything has turned in the system. Yes. I, there, there was another moment where, she, going back to your reference to Uber, where she was talking about young people really liking Uber and some of this being about, you know, they don't have a car. They are living in cities. They've got these mobile devices. Driving, yeah. Pick me up, you know. Yeah. And, and there were, you know, people signing stand with Uber petitions to have Uber in their cities where cities tried to stop Uber from entering them. And the interesting thing is her frame of that is we're standing with Uber as against unions and regulation, and that Republicans could say to young urban voters, look who's trying to stop you from being able to take an Uber. We're going to yes. protect your right to take an Uber. Now, of course, several years later, that hasn't aged particularly well because Uber as a brand is now associated with psychopath startup founders <laughs> and yeah. wage theft and tax evasion. Yeah. I mean, they've been, they've been just this week, they've been on a cycle of really trying to cleanse that reputation again. They do this every, every half (laughs) year now. Yeah, exactly. Every six months, let's refresh our image. But the thing that's funny about that, right, is, you know, again, this is an example of her, her looking for hope in the mess and saying, like, this might be a way to connect with them on this particular dimension. But it ignores some other things, you know, that that young people also, it turns out, aren't huge fans of wage theft, aren't huge fans of tax evasion, and that we're now living seven years later, eight years later, in a period where Amazon employees and Starbucks employees are unionizing. Well, it's funny. I read this and I, my note, because that that Uber chapter is just before the chapter on um, employment trends and millennials in the workplace, which you and uh, I love to talk about. It yeah. never gets old. So I did a, re- <laughs> a little bit of research connecting the same dots you're referring to. I'm so excited. I just shared in the chat with you a chart from uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics that shows union rate membership over time. Now, it's, this chart happens to break it out by gender, but I was looking at overall because we theoretically in 2014, 2016, we should see a spike uh-huh. if millennials are more interested in that. And even I was thinking about all the stories I've seen about unionization at Amazon with Apple, you know, technology companies. You do see a little bump in 2020, but not not significant. Now, this only goes to 2022. It'll be interesting to look at this. And then what I'm doing now is researching to see if I can get a generational break of it and see or by age cohort to see if there is a spike in it. But overall, you could just see the trend 20% union participation in 1983 overall for Americans and now down to 10% in 2022 on a pretty much a steady decline. I was expecting when I started this research based on what she says and based on the headlines I read that it would be ticking back up. I didn't think it'd be back at 20 or even half, but. I have been a union member because I taught at Parsons. And so Mm -hmm. you're in a teacher's union essentially in New York. It's not an option. Like you don't actually kind of, I mean, maybe now after some of the Supreme Court decisions, you get to at least not pay dues. Um, Mm -hmm. But it, you know, the job comes with being a a union member. Um, Oh, of course. I had worked briefly as a checker in in a grocery store that was in the middle of being unionized. And the union organizer was constantly in the break room (laughs) trying to get people to sign their union cards. 
And I was just like, I'm going back to college in a month. I'm not going to still be working here. You don't need me to sign this thing. And right. my signature is not going to help you. Yeah. My signature is not going to help you. And, um, and I got fired anyway for talking to the guy. And so, <laughs> which was pretty impressive. Um, they, they said I, uh, it was the, I, I'm going to go ahead and say it. The grocery store was known as Hagen's. It's a Northwest chain, I think. And I was told that I was not Hagen material. And I actually laughed because I was like, Farah, we've all been oh talking. God. And we all agree you are not Hagen material. We've been talking about this for some time. Um, I'm sorry this had to come out during this conversation. (laughs) It was was eventually going to be. It was eventually going to happen. Yes. But like the the decline in union membership has to do with how many union shops there are and how many union jobs there are. So there's that. But this data set is actually really interesting to look at because the decline for women is not much. Like it goes from a little less than 15% uh, union membership in 1983 to where are we now? Sort of 9.6%. So, you know, it's, it's not a non-decline, but it's a much flatter line than it is for men who are going from nearly 20, 25%, 24.7% in 83 to 10 and a half percent in 2022. Yeah. And intuitively that's because the change of trades and trade organizations being part of unions. But I, I would think, I think even though you don't get to just decide you're in a union, it's like in anything. If I'm really interested in it, if I'm really committed to it, if I really believe in it, I'm pushing for it. There would be, it would at least be flat. I mean, it does, the curve does soften, but I don't think it's, I'm not seeing any uptick that makes me feel like, oh yeah, I'm seeing a yeah. reflection of that in their policy, in their voting, yeah. in their, in, in anything they're doing here. I mean, yeah, I, I think that one's a really tough one to look at the actual unionization rate and say that that's a reflection of people's intentions, because there are a whole lot of jobs that just under the National Labor Relations Act don't qualify as jobs that can be unionized. You also have gig work, which kind of by definition isn't going to be a union job because you or don't a have a, an employer. I mean, this yeah. is this is part of why <laughs> these companies resist having employees per se. They have ICs because then they can't unionize. So, you know, there, there's a lot going on here and this, you know, this decline, it would be interesting to see the numbers pre-1983 because I bet it's an even steeper decline prior to 1983 because, you know, you also have like manufacturing left the United States and those jobs were heavily unionized. Um, so why are the women more likely to be, you know, sort of flat on their union membership? Well, because women are still nurses and teachers and and in those jobs that often have some kind of union. And it's men's jobs that are less likely to be unionized now. And now I think the other sort of struggle that you have is it's not like all Starbucks employees unionize at once. It's like right. store, store by store, store. unionization. Yeah, Same combat. thing with Amazon. And so you're talking about what, you know, 20 total employees in a, in a Starbucks shop. So I would expect these numbers to not be terribly impressive under the circumstances of the way we hire people now and the size of these shops. And also it's interesting which sectors are trying to reunionize. And then the other thing I would add to that is a lot of these folks who are unionizing are not necessarily unionizing with the traditional big established unions. They are forming new unions. Um, And I think that's a whole other, like we could do a whole podcast about labor relations. (laughs) Um, That that would be an interesting examination is maybe formation of unions versus union participation overall. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be interesting Um, to see. But but I think there there is nevertheless a real discomfort that people I think initially it felt like 
oh, this is very liberating. I can do whatever I want on my own terms and I can do everything in this digitally connected way and I have more agency. And then it's like, oh no, they're going to find a way not to pay you. And you have- Their business model depends on it, right? Yeah, their business model depends on it. And they are bigger and richer than you are and have more power than you do. And because you are not a full-time employee, you have no colleagues. You know, there, There is no one to have solidarity with. Every time you think you've figured out a way to hack the system to make a little more money, they will shut it down. You know, and so you're now in this trying <laughs> I am going to borrow from a different triangle of doom than Sarah Longwell refers to. This is a different triangle of doom where you've got the <laughs> employer and you've got the independent contractors and you've got the customers, and they're all in tension with each other because the customer feels like they're getting screwed. The independent contractor feels like they're getting screwed. And whatever. The employer always feels like they're getting screwed by both their customers, hilariously, and their employees who are not their employees because they're on Don't forget the shareholders. I think this actually becomes a square. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I think anymore, I tend to think of the, the, the firm and the shareholders as basically being the same thing. Um, <laughs> since clearly, it only exists for the shareholders. Um, thank you, Milton Friedman. But yeah, I think the other thing about this attempt to say, here's all this data we have about people, here's what we know about their behavior and preferences, is there is just this undercurrent of assuming that these things will remain steady. And either they will remain steady for any group of people that passes through this age cohort, or it will remain steady for that cohort as they age. Yes. And so people who really love taking an Uber um, are always going to stand with Uber. We know that she knows that that's not so. Yeah, yeah. Which is funny. So she references religion and she talks about their declining interest in religion. But the data she cites, uh, they've become less likely to be affiliated with a particular face. And looking at adults of all ages over time, the proportion of Americans who say they have a great deal of faith in church or organized religion has fallen from 1973 to only so, so and so today. It's dropped about 20 points. The point she starts with is millennials are different because they have less trust in organized faith or less interest in it. But then what she goes on to say in the same paragraph is like, actually, if you look holistically across America, all ages, interest is declining. And and that's, as we maybe transition now into like how this impacts the narrative, I think this is the part where I get stuck where it's, it's about millennials because millennials is the first word in the sentence. But in reality, they are consistent with other generations and other Americans in that fact. Their, their interest in organized religion is the same you know, their passion levels, their, the way it's distributed is roughly the same as the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. But, well, millennials are first because that's the, that's the group we want to talk about. You could rewrite this to be about boomers, same, same set of stats, and just flip the, the order of the words, and it's still true. It's not, it doesn't yield anything that's like, and here's how Republicans can win them. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it does feel like straining, Right. As, as we go through the book, it's like, oh, this looks like a promising little nugget. And maybe we can like skate to this this puck right now and see if maybe they would they would like us for just one cycle. Like it, it you know, it, it feels a little Some bit of like it does. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it feels like this is a briefing doc. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I think you know, given her firm and what it does and given what she does for a living, like that makes a lot of sense. Like come hire us, right? We we understand, you know, we, we understand how to understand voters and have a more kind of nuanced view of it and also like spot these opportunities for connection. The great thing she couldn't have possibly seen coming was the total turn on the part of the party to not give a 
shit about any of that. Like, right. so just go, we don't have to connect on any authentic level. We can just hate things in common. It'll be great. Yeah, exactly. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Exactly. There are also, I'll say, as someone who spent a lot of my um, formative years with, you know, people who became top conservatives on Twitter, is that there are funny little obsessions in here. And like, one of them, for example, is about public sector pension funds. (laughs) Yeah, some of that gets really, really nuanced in a hurry. Yes. Um, um, My eyes are glazing over it. Like public employee unions and public sector pension funds. And I'm like, none of this matters if you are not a public employee. <laughs> totally. But that's a funny thing about the book. Like you that's where the pollster expertise shines through versus the the like pop demographic writer that yeah. the selfie vote title kind of puts puts you in that space. And like I said, it is a breezy read. But there are points where she dips down into like, and here's my expertise, like, here's some real policy things that are nuanced for people in about five districts <laughs> per state, uh, where those yes. things matter. Yeah. So. And then there are things in here that, that do remind me so much of the the Republican autopsy, because it's like, there's a thing in here about, she writes, young Americans want to be in control of their own careers and their own finances. They want to be able to start small businesses. They want to be able to move up and be rewarded for what they achieve. They want to be able to change jobs along the way and not have to worry about losing their health insurance or retirement account if they do. Many of the old systems that govern careers and benefits are ripe for reform and smart conservatives will take the lead on reaching out to young Americans with forward-looking ideas ideas that address the changes that need to be made. And the Republican Party went, and instead, no, we're not doing who's, who's, who is championing any of these things? Right. I'm sorry. Uh, her name is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like, That's a dirty word. That's a dirty word. Yes. I mean, I, I and that is not to say too. that she's a secret liberal. I'm just saying that like, yes, conservatives yeah. could have had a story about this, but they chose not to have a story about this. But this story also is not a millennials only story, right? Like, Correct. That's the boomers wanted this That's too. Gen Xers want this. Gen Z is going to want this. And the, and the book could have been equally powerful if it would have said in the religion chapter, in the section that you just cited, good news, guys. Millennials are consistent with other generations and we already have a strong, effective position on this. And here's how it goes. Like you can still reach them. Mm -hmm. This part, this is what's happening with religion. And look, we get this consistent story that would have been equally effective. Like one of my favorite things when I'm giving strategy to clients is telling them like, Hey, good news. You're already doing this. There's nothing wrong with that, but it feels like the book is like, well, here's something different about them, but it's really the same. I agree with that. And I think this is this is the thing that, you know, I come back to with a lot of the things that are, you know, we try to attribute it to generation. And instead, it's like, your brand either does this thing, or it doesn't do this thing that people in this life stage and in this culture that we're living in want. When she appeared on, yeah, you know, when she was on the on 538 recently, she did talk about like, Everybody, and Kim Parker talked about this, like everybody's attitudes about gay marriage, for example, have liberalized over the last several, you know, last decade. And so that is a period effect. Yeah, I wish the period effects were in this book. Exactly. Because I think one of the things that will be interesting is like, okay, young people 
say and have said since the 80s that they don't want to rely on Social Security for their retirement and they don't think there will be any money in Social Security when they reach retirement. I mean, literally that prediction has been since like 1982 or something, maybe maybe right. sooner. But like I remember my 30-something parents talking about how there would be no Social Security when they retired. And now there is because it is the third rail of politics for a reason. You cannot break that promise with with the old and you cannot break that promise with the disabled and you cannot break that promise with, you know, people who have no other means of 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 generating income for themselves. So this is this is just like basics of a civilized society stuff now. Yeah. And so my question is like, okay, those 20-somethings or early 30-somethings in 2014 who are saying that, how do they feel when they're 45? How do they feel when they're 55? How do they feel when they're approaching 65? I bet all of a sudden they feel very differently about social security and pensions and retirement accounts than they do in their early 20s because they're in a different life stage. Right. But there are also going to be period effects. Like we're either going to see, you know, right. economic growth or we're going to see economic contraction. We're either going to see an expansion of the social safety net or we're going to see it stay the same or stagnate or get smaller. Like all of, of those course. things are also going to affect how people feel about those things. In the same way that like after Obergefell, after Lawrence versus Texas, people's opinions about about the LGBTQ plus community liberalized across the board. Everybody got more liberal about it because mm -hmm. once you legalize something, well, then it's okay. <laughs> you know, like, right. so once the system's in place, then we learn to live with the system. We're adaptive social creatures. That's kind of what we do. It's how we survive. And it, this just doesn't take into account that. But, but I understand why, right? Like it's cycle by cycle, taking advantage of whatever you can take advantage of in order to get, engagement, turnout, et cetera. And, and like, that's, that's why you're right. I think it, it is a briefing document for a fair-minded conservative campaign, not the Trump. Yeah. Campaign, and that's why it's hard to happen that's, immediately after. That's why it's hard for her to produce a book yeah. um, because I think she has cycle to cycle, you know, election to election, season to season. And a book is a lasting artifact. So you read it and you're like, well, maybe point in time, <laughs> some of yeah. this. You know, I like I said, I don't I don't there's not a lot in here that I say like, oh, I disagree or this is wrong. It's just kind of nuanced like, why did you frame it that way? You yeah. Know? Yeah. And and I have I a think, question. No, go ahead. Do you think I wanna I wanna think about we've talked about the text of the book, but I'm uh -huh. thinking about now the context of the book in the narrative. Mm. In this author's mind, are millennials at this point in the narrative the hero, the villain, or something else? I think they are a probably not a necessary evil, but like a, a necessary constituency. Like the the feeling in the circle she's traveling in is long term, we're not going to win if we don't get them, and we need to get some of them, and then hope that rightward shift happens over time to get more of them as they age. But right now, while they're young, how do we find common cause with them? Mm -hmm. And I actually want to give her a lot of credit. She's looking for authentic places of connection. She's not trying to manufacture a set of beliefs or pick a fight with them or any of that kind of thing. She's looking for these places where actually we share values. And so even in like the, the stuff about religion, she's looking for that of, you know, they do have a sense of right and wrong and they do have a sense of treating others the way you would like to be treated. And, you yeah. know, so we can find common values somewhere in here, even if you don't go to church regularly. Right. So I think she's trying to say, like, 
love them or hate them, they are they have to be part of your voters if you want to win elections. And in order yeah. for them to be part of your voters, we have to adapt a little. We either have to find authentic places of connection where we don't have to change that much, but we have to talk about what we believe in the way they will appreciate and understand. Or we might want to moderate on some of these things to be more relevant to what they care about. I don't think she's what I think is interesting now that we talk about it is I don't feel like she is actually doing what the GOP autopsy did, which was to say we need to get more liberal about stuff. I mean, that's more or less what that report said, which is why that report couldn't be actioned on like they, they were like, well, what do we do with this? this? These are not our positions. Like, OK, so we'll just I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff in that. <laughs> Here's what's really funny. Right. When that report comes out, a lot of the people working in, in the Republican Party are people like Tim Miller and Sarah Longwell at the Bulwark who are young, you know, are millennial gay Republicans. Right. The log cabin Republicans were a welcome group in the party up until kind of the Tea Party era. And mm -hmm. like there was a sense that this had no particular, you know, maybe we don't believe in gay marriage, but we're fine with domestic partnerships. Maybe we're a little uncomfortable with gay, gay parents adopting children, but, you know, we can find our way there. I think there was a sense, and Sarah Longwell talks about this on, on you know, in the Bulwark frequently, like, that this was a done deal. Like it was just inexorably going to move towards that. And most of the country was going to embrace gay marriage and gay rights. And so there was no reason that the Republican Party should be exempt from that, that we would all just wind up there and it wouldn't be a thing we argued about anymore. Immigration, there was a huge move. I mean, the Bush administration wanted to liberalize immigration. There was this whole side of the Republican Party that was generally speaking in favor of immigration and also kind of pro-Hispanic communities because there was a belief that Hispanics shared cultural values yeah, with conservatives values, yeah. because of their Christianity and conservatism or Catholicism. And so like their family values alignment would bring them into the tent. And as that mm -hmm. segment of the population grew, that would be a net positive for Republicans in elections. But never doubt the power of racism, right? <laughs> like <laughs> never sleep on that because it will come yeah for whoever it needs to come for in order for certain kinds of people to get in power. And I think that's the thing. I think there were a lot of well-intentioned, what I, we would now consider to be moderate Republicans that just thought that like the whole culture was moderating on these things and that it wasn't outside Republicanism to be cool with that stuff. And that it was a good electoral strategy. I mean, we're talking about people like Ari Fleischer and, you know, all of <laughs> Haley Barber and all of these people running that report who just thought, like, this is the future. This is where we have to go in order to make this work. And there are clear policy decisions we can make. One is, like, just back off on the gay stuff. Like, just stop talking about the gay stuff and let that do what it's going to do. And on immigration, right. like, figure out a path of citizenship for people and you know, liberalize some of the some of the immigration methods. And it just didn't see a whole lot of things coming. It, it I think, didn't anticipate the breakdown of civil society in Latin America and South America. <laughs> it didn't anticipate yeah. the rise of Trump. And this book obviously couldn't have forecasted a lot of those yeah. things either. You know, yeah. it's very focused on millennials at that time and place. Yeah. 
And I think what, it also is <laughs> right. It, it is also this wonderful indicator that like there are people who identify as Republicans or used to anyway, who are in fact not racist and not anti-gay. <laughs> like that, the, the, this just wasn't in their particular radar. And it's a kind of sweet postcard from the past um, in some respects because it's like oh bless your hearts um unfortunately <laughs> you, you just got you know railroaded by this other yeah. contingency that you guys always thought you kind of had under control and you didn't and <laughs> so now oh boy uh you've got a whole other yeah. set of problems besides how to connect with millennials um right but it does go back to my thing about there are period effects around what brands are attractive and so you know if we're all kind of dealing with a set of cultural norms that I grew up with versus people who are 15 years younger than me grew up with versus people 15 years older than me grew up with, that is going to express itself in what brands I prefer. Mm -hmm. And that includes the brands of the political parties. And so like, Right now, my my theory about this is not really that millennials are so much further to the left than their parents were on any kind of, if there was such a way as to like objectively evaluate that, which there isn't, but rather that the brand of the Republican Party is so toxic for so many people who grew up with those sets of cultural norms that they just can't select that brand. You can't get there, yeah. I don't know that, you know, we, we are living in the era of liquid death, not jolt cola, right? Like people want to buy hardcore water in a can <laughs> as opposed to something that's all the sugar and twice the caffeine, right? I get very confused about hardcore water in a can. I don't, I don't understand it. I don't. It's hilarious. It's like. I don't understand any part of it. It is so Gen X, first of all. It is so Gen X as a cultural sort of thing. It's like hardcore kid who's also straight edge. Like, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that I get. That's what it is. And yeah. I, I will just like, this has nothing to do with Kristen Soltis Anderson's very, you know, admirable book, but it is hilarious to me. It was the only ad I laughed at in the Super Bowl was like, here's a pregnant woman who goes and opens this thing that looks like beer and just guzzles it and little kids just guzzling it. And I was like, what the hell is this? And it's water in a can, but it's hardcore. Yeah. Anyway, but like, you know, that, that is a period effect. And like, we're more health conscious than we were then. And it's not cute to let little kids over caffeinate and have too much sugar. Like, you know, like right. we just, society or has moved on. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or college students. Right. Yeah. But, you know, so these are things that are really, it's hard, I think. And again, I go back to that conversation I had with her and Patrick many years ago now of just coming away going, you're so unfortunately thrust into the prediction game. And I get to live over here in the learning game. And mm -hmm. like everything is about seeing things change over time, observing those changes over time. How do you kind of catch the wave as opposed to how do you predict where the wave is going to go? I wonder what this book would be like if she didn't have to be in the prediction game. Because really she's, she's a capable writer. She's obviously got a grasp on all the data. And I wonder if she could have, I think it would be a really valuable book for the research we're doing if it didn't have to be in like and so therefore you should do this yeah you know if it was seeking those kind of conclusions i would love to have an opportunity to to talk to her about what she knows about millennials and what she thought about them at that time mm -hmm. in light of 
culture yep. versus that prediction, that end state of like, okay, but on November 8th, what's going to happen or whatever, yeah. whatever the Tuesday date is. It is what I think we should also link to that 538 politics episode she was on relatively recently, because I think some of that thinking is reflected in that conversation about True. drawing the distinction between kind of tracking millennials as they aged versus looking at age cohorts you know, in snapshots in time. And then also trying to understand what's the starting point versus what's the likely end point. And I, I think it would be interesting to ask her to to talk about that in light of all that's changed for sure. But I love that provocation of like, what if you didn't have to make a prediction about what will work and instead just sort of think about who these As an expansion are. of book club, I'm hoping we get a chance to talk to some of these, um, some of the authors yeah. and pick their brains on it and debate a little bit, but we'll see what, what we're able to dig up. This concludes the premiere <laughs> chapter of book club up next though, when we come back to book club, the next book we are currently digging into is the generation myth. Why when you're born matters less than you think by Bobby Duffy. So I don't know when we will record that one, but uh, that'll be the next book in the list. And we're working our way down a list. I think if you're listening to this and you say, those guys should be reading this book, please send us a note. You can send it to Farah at InTheDemoPodcast.com or Adam at InTheDemoPodcast.com. We will add your book to our list if it uh, meets our very rigorous standards, such as having millennial in the title (laughs) 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 and some other stuff. <laughs> it's true. That's the only qualifier. <laughs> no. The list is getting long. So yeah, yeah, this is good. All right. Now we just awesome. got to get uh, just got to get Kristen Soltis Anderson to talk to us. Well, let's, working on let's it. We'll, working on it. Yeah. Let's see what we can do. All right. Great to see you. Good to see you. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Pierno with support from The Difference Engine and edited by Allison Preisinger and Amp Studio. Music by Omega Man under the Creative Commons license. Go to inthedemopodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information. Please rate and review the show. Someone told us that helps.